following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. It's a picture, and really chapter, the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 parallels and mirrors a lot of what happens uh, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And it really is a picture of God recreating the earth. And it's kind of done in reverse order. So in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you've got God creating. He brings out, you know, he separates the water. Well, first, the, the, um, the earth is, is a big ball of watery darkness, and God separates the waters above from waters below, and he brings out the dry land, and he puts plants and then animals. And then you find in, in chapter 3 um, the fall, and sin comes into the world. And then that process is somewhat reversed in, in chapter 6, 7, and 8, 9 of, of Genesis, where the sinfulness of mankind has reached a peak. God has decided to destroy man and, and every living creature because of their sin. So he returns the, the earth to a watery darkness. Uh, in a sense, you see this picture, the waters above and the waters below converging again. Instead of being separated, they converge to completely return the world to watery chaos. And then we see the uh, spirit or the wind blowing on this watery chaos. And after the 150 days, the water begins to recede. And soon what happens? Well, the waters above and waters below separate. God seals off those, those gushing torrents of water. And then what happens? Well, dry, the mountain peaks appear, and then soon there is dry land, and then there is you know, the olive leaf. Man and the animals exit the boat and begin to repopulate the earth. Uh, and God, in, in uh, chapter 8, <coughs> restates the same commissions that he gave to Adam and Eve. And you see God really starting over again with a new fresh start of creation. And that's a lot of what the picture of Noah's and, and the flood is about. And uh, God says to them, uh, and we'll read chapter 8, starting at verse 15, God said to Noah, Leave the boat, all of you, your, you, your wife, and your sons and their wives. Release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, the small animals that scurry along the ground, so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. Remember, that's the exact words that God spoke to the animals and to man at Genesis chapter 1. He says, be fruitful and multiply. So he's restating that blessing. So Noah and his wife and sons and their wives left the boat. Uh, large animals, small animals, birds, every kind came out pair by pair. And Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed his burnt offerings. And then down in verse chapter 9, it says again, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, and he told them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Um, so God recreates, starts over, erases everything off the face of the earth, and it's a blank slate. And he again reaffirms, restates, reestablishes his, his blessing and his instructions to man. And the first blessing was to be fruitful and multiply. And it is stated both as a command and as a promise. Uh, as we said in Genesis 1, God did not ask them to do something that was beyond them. Right? He's here guaranteeing that they would be fruitful, that to the degree you go out and try this, you'll be effective and successful. Uh, and that you don't have to worry about your livestock or cattle not, not multiplying. Right? 
And this is significant, especially, as we said, in Genesis 1, in, in the day of the Hebrews, where they were very dependent on an agricultural lifestyle. And many pagan religions would practice all these strange fertility rites to guarantee that the gods would give fertility to them and their livestock. But God says, you don't have to worry about that. You are blessed with fruitfulness. And he again reaffirms that promise. Uh, he says, it's the same deal. We're starting over, go out, multiply, fill the earth with abundance. Um, and it's interesting that theme carries on in through the New Testament. In John 15, Jesus promises and tells us that God's design and plan for us is that we would bear much fruit, that we would be very fruitful. And he's here not speaking only in terms of bearing lots of children, uh, but really spiritually and in every other way, we're to be a people who are fruitful, who have abundance, and we are blessed by God in that way. Okay, we uh, deal with the limits of the curse, but God's blessing is there for us to, to fill the earth and multiply both physically as well as spiritually. <clears throat> so that's what's going on here, kind of the picture. Uh, it's a picture of God's regenerating work, and God loves to do this. No matter how, and this is the great kind of moral of this part of the story, is no matter how bad we mess things up, uh, man had made a complete disaster of the, wor of the world, God is always able to recreate. He's always able to regenerate and restore and redeem what we have messed up. So you may feel like a lot of your past, or maybe all of your past up to the present moment, has been a disaster, has been filled with sin and wickedness and problems. Uh, God is a genius at, at starting over. And if we allow him to wash us with the flood of the blood of Christ. He says, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. And that's the work of Christ in us, to recreate, to start over with us, a new life in Him. Amen? Amen. I'm glad we don't have to just keep going on with the old life. But there is the hope of shutting the door on my old life of sin and opening a new, fresh start by grace. So that's what God does with the whole world here in Genesis uh, 8 and 9. Uh, and with these new blessings, in chapter 9, he spells out this new blessing, and it's actually a, a, verses 1 through 7 form a very tight unit where he starts with this blessing, be fruitful and multiply, and in verse 7 he restates it. And in between, he kind of spells out the conditions or parameters of this blessing. And uh, blessings come uh, with, in, in Scripture, blessings always come with responsibility. We saw that in Genesis, 1, uh, Genesis 2. Uh, and three, where God gave them the garden, and he said, you know, the garden is yours. You can eat of all the trees of the garden, but there is responsibility. There are limits. You may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we find here God doing much the same thing. And in fact, he not only states his original blessing, but he adds to it, he expands it a bit. And he says in chapter 9, verse 2, uh, he says, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, all the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the little animals of the screen, all the fish, the birds, everything. I have placed them in your power. Okay, kind of echoes back to having dominion over them. And then he goes on to that. He says, and I have given them to you for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. Okay, and this is new. Uh, this is good news for all of us who like a good steak, you know. Now God has expanded his blessing. Not only do they have to be vegetarians, but now... They can go to Sizzler. Uh, they can go hunting. They can go kill and shoot stuff with God's blessing. 
I love this verse because I love shooting and killing stuff. It's, 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 a, it's a fun thing. Amen. I got at least one fellow hunter here. <coughs> uh, they had permission to exercise dominion and authority over the animals in a new way. Not only are they to subdue them, but they now have the, gi- the, the gift of hunting and eating them. All right, so this is a new blessing. But with this new blessing, and with the blessing, extended blessing, comes greater responsibility. God also sets in place new parameters or boundaries for their, their role as ruler, as, as those who have dominion over the earth. And it's spelled out simply in two things. First of all, he says, uh, you can eat the living animals, but you cannot eat them with their life blood. Okay? He says, you, you, you may not eat the blood of, uh, in, in these living animals. So he spells out some boundaries about how they treat and deal with the animals that they kill. Now, we don't know anything about the world before, before the flood and that, that God destroyed. But aside from this, God characterized it as, as being extremely violent. He said he was tired of the violence of that society. And we don't know what that meant. But you kind of wonder what kind of practices they engaged in that, uh, that God was now putting limits to. And uh, they're actually, and this is practiced, in, I'm, I've read in some places in the world today, the practice of eating the meat of living animals. You know, so in other words, instead of killing the animal, you actually take the meat out live. That's fresh. Okay, a whole new meaning to on the hoof, right? And then eating it that way. And uh, some commentators speculate that that kind of practice was going on uh, frequently before the flood. And, of course, it's, it's inhumane, it's, it's torture, uh, it's cruel, and it would be a picture of excessive violence and wickedness. And so God curves that. Um, he, he makes a point of saying that the life is in the blood. Uh, huge significance in terms of Christ on the cross and the imagery there. Uh, but he says, you know, it's, it's the animal's lifeblood. And uh, the, the, the provision here is that that blood is thoroughly drained. Now, interestingly, technically, just, just a side note, technically, it does not say you cannot eat blood. Okay, it says technically you cannot eat the blood while it's still in the meat. Okay, so for the, all of you who love eating, you know, the blood with your guaitiao, eat up, okay? Uh, just make sure it's not in the, the pig still, okay? Separate from the pig. Maybe it's okay. I don't know. Uh, I don't do it either way. Um, so, so God uh, wants them to, in essence, respect life. Okay, they can take the life of animals. They can eat the life of animals, but they must respect life. Okay, so the point is they need to treat, still treat animals, in a way that respects their life. That's that's what this is about, uh, and they are to respect the God who give, gave them life. And that's what the lifeblood thing is all about. You know, we're quite disconnected from this. Um, unless you do hunt, you know, most of us go and we go to Lotus or Big C and we buy it frozen. Okay, now there's the blood not in it. You know, it's frozen, thoroughly dead. Okay, so we don't really deal with this. But this is the picture. And to extend it a bit, it really means that we have a responsibility to be humane in our treatment of animals and in our handling as we hunt and kill them and eat them, we do it in a, in a nice way, okay, as you're hunting and eating and killing. All right. Secondly, not only are we to be, is there that limitation, but there also 
There's a new responsibility regarding the blood of human beings. And he says, anybody shedding the blood of a human being, anybody taking the life of a human being, will give an account for that blood. Okay, they will answer for shedding of blood. Whether it be an animal who takes a human life or another man. Uh, and apparently we can speculate as well that the, the world before the flood had very little regard for human life and that they very easily killed each other off. And it also echoes back to Genesis chapter 4 where Cain kills Abel. That one of the very first sins after the garden was homicide, was murder. And uh, God sees the evil and murderous intentions in the hearts of men. And so he puts a new boundary around man to curb the extent of the wickedness. And he says, it is now not only your right, but it's actually your responsibility to call to account those who take human life. All right? Now before, I don't know if they did or did not, but apparently they did not do it well. And God now gives uh, the responsibility to man and society to call to account those who take human life. In the Old Testament, it took two shapes. One was... If you, uh, in, in early Israel, if you were a family member and somebody in your family, your brother or a, a son or a father was, was murdered, it was actually your job to go avenge that murder, which meant you hunted down the person who did it and you killed them, okay? Uh, very Wild Westish kind of thing, right? Later, that was transferred from the family as the avenger of blood to society as a whole, where society through the court system was to execute justice. Uh, uh, you know, this raises all kinds of questions and we won't go into the whole debate, but what are the implications for modern justice? Should we be practicing capital punishment? All that kind of stuff. I, I'm not even going to go into that. Uh, but I will say this, that this teaches that society has the right and duty to pre bring people to account for how they treat each other. A general principle. Okay. God has given the responsibility of us regulating, of us carrying out justice in how we treat each other. And the principle is simply life for life, eye for eye, hand for hand, tooth for tooth. That's the kind of Old Testament legal uh, ethic. If you steal, you're responsible for what you have stolen to pay it back. If you take, if you injure a person and it costs them their eye, you are responsible to pay back an equivalent, right? If you murder, the cost is your life. So at the very least, it would imply that if somebody kills somebody, they pay with their life, whether it means the death sentence or life in prison, they forfeit their life and freedom. Right? And the bigger issue is that God expected and put on humanity this, the responsibility of policing each other. Right? We have a God-given responsibility to set limits to our wickedness, all right? And, uh, and God expects that of, of humanity, that we will hold each other to a, account and that we would exercise justice. And it's interesting, you go later in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, one of the condemnation of the prophets over Israel was that they were not carrying out God's justice, right? Not only were they murderers, but they were not rightly handling those who were murderers. And that God actually places a very high level of blame on Israel's leaders for not acting with justice, right? Because God had given them this charge uh, here in Genesis 9. Well, uh, God goes on and he, he says in verse, uh, uh, verse 
8, he says, God told Noah and his sons, Look, I am now confirming my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the animals that run the boat, birds, livestock, wild animals, every living creature. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Uh, this is the first instance, instance in Scripture where the word covenant is used. Now, as I shared, I really believe in the garden, uh, God, God's purpose and intention in the garden was that it was a covenant, a certain kind of covenant relationship. But here God expressly spells out and, and names a covenant. And what's interesting, and we'll come back to this in a second, but if you back up a bit and read the end of chapter 8, uh, it says this, The Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice Noah offered, and he said to himself, you get the picture, God is in heaven, and he's just observed the sacrifice of Noah, and he begins to reflect within his own heart. Literally in the Hebrew it says he spoke to his own heart. He reflects in his own heart, and he thinks to himself, he says, um, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. I will never again destroy every living thing. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Okay. Then God comes down and he speaks with Noah and his sons, and God spells out and, and speaks to them his promise of a covenant. And this is brilliant, okay? God thinks within his own heart. Now, God is not dialoguing with Noah. He's not interacting with Noah. But within his own heart, God has determined certain things. He has made decisions about his actions towards humanity. And he has reflected on the flood. He's reflected on Noah's gift. And he determines within his own heart what he will do. That's a very important distinction. God is self-governed and self-ruled. Okay? He decided on his own. He did not have a board meeting and invite Noah and sons and say, okay, let's take a vote on this whole flood destroying the world thing. What do you think about it? Right? doesn't do that. Okay? It's a council of one. God ponders these things in his heart. But once God decides something, he reveals his will and intent and purpose through covenant promise. Right? Okay. God makes promises to men about the intentions of his heart. And he says to Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And the covenant with God in the Old Testament is always a binding promise that God uh, constrains himself to in his relationship with men. Sometimes the covenant is, is kind of one-sided, meaning what God will do alone. Sometimes it's two-sided, meaning what God will do and what he expects men to do. This one seems to be a, one, be a bit one-sided, although if you factor in the blessing and the uh, expectations he puts on them, there is a human side to it. But, but, but essentially God's promise is this. I will, because of my own decision, and regardless... In fact, he spells out specifically, even though I know how wicked you are, and I know how evil mankind is, even in light of that, I promise I will never again destroy every living thing. Okay? I promise to you that never again will I exercise the full vengeance of my wrath on a wicked world. Okay? And he binds himself to a covenant with this. Uh, and he makes it public to Noah and his sons. 
even though the deliberation of his heart were quite hidden and secret, uh, he spells out his covenant with them. And then he goes on to uh, even take it one step further, and he sets a sign for this covenant. He says, I'm making this promise, but I am going to put a mark or a sign as a reminder of this promise. And the sign is, of course, a, a rainbow, uh, literally a bow, or, or, you know, we know it's a rainbow in the sky. Um, and this sign would be a reminder for all generations and, and would ratify or would signify the covenant for all generations to come. Okay? So this is an eternal covenant with man and with animals, with every living being, uh, from Noah's day till the end of the earth, till, as long as the earth remains, God makes this promise. By the way, just word of application, uh, is, is it possible for us to, to, to so destroy the world that we do ourselves in? Well, maybe it is possible, but I don't think God will allow it. And I love at the end of chapter 8, God makes this great promise. As long as the earth remains, there's going to be day and night, there's going to be summer and winter, there's going to be seasons, there's going to be harvest, right? There may be global warming, and we can certainly contribute to global warming. Uh, we can pollute our oceans so much that we kill off most of the fish with you know, oil spills. We can do all kinds of things to mess up the planet. But God has guaranteed that life is going to go on to the end. Right? He's, he's going to put a boundary. So the end of the world will come, but it will not be at the hands of men. Okay, it will be at the hands of God. Just if you're worried about that. If you're worried about that, Take a big, deep breath. Okay, God's going to make sure the world lasts as long as he intends. Right? Um, the sign of the covenant. What's interesting about the rainbow is that it says specifically that, he says in verse 14, When I send the clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear, and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. And never again will I flood the earth. Very interesting. God says he put the rainbow in the clouds, not for our benefit, but for his. Okay, this is kind of an interesting concept. Okay, it's not that when it rains and a rainbow comes out afterwards, we can go, okay, God, this is a reminder that you're not going to, a reminder to me that you're not going to destroy the earth. It's not what it is. God said that when I look down on the earth and see the rainbow, I will be reminded of my covenant. Now here again we come to kind of the same problem with Noah out on the oceans like we talked about last week. Does this mean God could forget his word or his promise? Does this how some kind of imply that God needs to tie bows on his finger, so to speak, because he's very forgetful? Okay, is God like me? Okay, I am very forgetful. I have to write everything down and then I have to read it repeatedly or I forget all the time. Is God like that? He's going, boy, I need some reminder here. What can I do so that Next time I want to send a storm and wipe out the earth, I remember. Well, of course, God does not forget. When God wills and purposes and determines something in his heart, he never forgets okay, his word or his promise. Scripture says repeatedly that God always remembers his promises. And we can count on his word that he will fulfill and be faithful to every promise. So what does this mean? And why did God need this? Well, as we saw Last week when we looked with God remembering Noah in the boat, God's remembering is always a picture of what he intends to do to redeem and save those he loves. It's, it's a picture of God's grace. Right? 
It's a picture of God dealing with those he looks upon with mercy. And this is, this is kind of the picture. God is saying, before the flood, when I looked down, I saw the evil and wickedness of humanity. I saw a world filled with violence, filled with evil, wicked people who were evil from their early childhood. And that's the nature and character of mankind. And when I saw that, it stirred in me wrath and anger, and I was right to judge sin and to destroy every living thing. He said, now I am going to look differently at the world. When I look down at the world, I am going to see a rainbow. And that rainbow is a sign or symbol that from now on I will exercise mercy as I look at the sinful, wicked world. That until, as long as the earth remains, that I will deal mercifully and patiently with this evil and wicked people. Right? And it's not that God would forget. But it's just a picture of how God chooses now to look at planet earth. Okay, is, the, is, is the earth any less sinful than it was before the flood? I don't think so. Is it any less violent? Are people any less wicked? I don't think so. What's different now is that God has chosen to be more merciful. Okay, God has chosen to operate not based on man's actions, but based on his own character. And he is a God who is merciful and gracious. And this is a sign that from the days of Noah onward till the ends of the earth, God would exercise mercy as he deals with planet earth. Now, does that mean he, he uh, does not deserve or reserve the right to exercise judgment and to deal with sin? Well, absolutely not. God still will judge sin. He still deal, will deal with sin. He will ultimately judge sin. But overall, his, his attitude, his heart towards planet earth is one of mercy. Now, he can destroy individual people. He can destroy villages. He, can act, he, he didn't say he wouldn't wipe out cities or entire nations. And throughout the Old Testament to this very day, we see God sending huge disasters uh, and sending judgment. But it's always limited. His mercy limits the extent of his wrath. Okay? Well, um, so we got this... Basically, after the flood, the picture here, God recreated the earth. It's a new, fresh start. Uh, some new things have changed with man. But what's significant here is that something new has changed in the way God will deal with humanity. Okay, God will, will act with a greater degree of mercy as he operates with mankind uh, and with every living thing. Now, the question I want to come back to, you know, is, is um, what brought about this change in God's heart? Okay? Uh, did God just discover mercy? <laughs> was God not merciful before? Um, the Bible says that God is unchanging. His character and nature is always the same. Uh, he is immutable. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Was God not merciful before the flood? Uh, why did not he act in mercy before the flood? Um, did God look on the flood and decide that such universal destruction was somehow wrong and that he was just out of control? Is God reflecting here that he needs like anger management classes? Right? Well, that, that, that's not a good image of God, right? Okay, we don't believe God is ever out of control. 
God does not need anger management classes. Okay? He was just and right in what he did. Uh, why does God change? Is he reflecting that somehow his, his actions were unjust? Or does he feel bad about his judgment? Absolutely not. Okay? God never regrets justice and judgment. God never regrets his own righteous anger. So God's not pondering, going, gosh, that was, that was, that was bad, you know. A lot of people died. Um, maybe I shouldn't do that again. Not at all, absolutely, okay. God could and has every right to do the same thing again. So what changed God's heart? Why all of a sudden now, from the days of Noah to the present, do we see God exercising such patience and restraint in places like Thailand? where virtually the whole country worships idols. Uh, in places like America, where virtually the whole country is materialistic, greedy, and whatever. You know. uh, why is it God has chosen to act differently? <coughs> well, let's back up a little bit and see what changed God's heart. Uh, back up to chapter 8, it says, God said to Noah, leave the boat, you and everybody. And be fruitful and multiply. So Noah and his wife and his sons left the boat and all the animals with them. And then in verse 20 it says, Then Noah built an ark, an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been set aside that were clean and, uh, for that purpose. Um, what was Noah's first act getting off the boat? Uh, this to me, this is amazing. Think about this, okay? Noah and his family have been on this ark for 365 days, okay? Now, I want you to put yourself in Noah's shoes here. You've just been on a boat with a bunch of animals for 365 days. You've endured this incredible, earth-destroying flood, okay? You have never really seen daylight to speak of for 365 days. The door opens, you went out of the ark. What's the first thing you would do, Noah? I'm going to Disneyland! Or... I, mean, I can think of a lot of things I would want to do. Take a bath, I don't know. Uh, go for a very long walk on solid ground. Um, certainly Noah had a lot of things to think about. Okay, where are we going to sleep? We need a house. We need beds. We need furniture. We need a stove. We need a refrigerator. You know, I got to go to Lotus and go shopping. Um, we, we have crops to plant. We have stables and barns to build. We have land to clear. Um, we see in the next section of the story, Noah liked to drink. You know, where's, where's, some, good, where's some good alcohol? Okay? There's a lot of things Noah could have done leaving the ark. The very first thing he does, very first thing he does, is he stops and he worships God. Amazing. Amazing. Um, what are our real priorities? Uh, you know, I, I would, I would, if we had time, I would do this. You know, I'd, uh, it's always fun to sit and, and make a list of your priorities. If you were to do that right now, to write out your priorities, what would be first on your list? Okay, well, of course, God, right? It's the Sunday school answer. God, you know, family, work, whatever. I don't know how you would write those out. But what are your real priorities? Okay, and what I find in my own life, there's a big difference between the list and reality. And the difference is I can measure my true priorities not by what I write on the list, 
by what, by what I do first in my life. Okay? What gets first grab of my time and my money and my attention? What gets first call on my attention and my thoughts? Okay? That's our real priorities. If we were to write down our list of what we think our priorities are, and then write down another list that spells out what we do first, okay? where, we, where we spend our money first, what captures the majority of our time. Okay? When there's a conflict on our schedule, what trumps everything else? That's your priorities. Okay? That's what's important to you. Not what you tell yourself is important on a list. What matters is what you do first. Okay? What you do first with your time and your money and your attention. What does Noah do first? He worships God. He doesn't eat. He doesn't build a house. He doesn't go find a job. He doesn't get to work. The thing that matters most to Noah is worshiping God. Chapter 6 says that Noah was a righteous and blameless man who walked with God. That was the single priority in his life. Right? And even after spending 365 days on the ark, which, by the way, there are some good reasons why he didn't do this on the ark. Okay? You're on a floating boat. There's no land anywhere, dry land anywhere. Constructing a huge bonfire to burn an animal on a wooden boat is a bad idea. Okay? So there are good reasons why he couldn't do this on the boat. But first chance he gets, first thing he does, he worships God. He offers a sacrifice. And I want to take just a second to look at uh, the example of his worship. Uh, what was in this offering that made it so worshipful? Uh, first of all, the scripture tells us that it was a whole burnt offering, which was the most generic and basic kind of offering in the Old Testament and later in Leviticus. Uh, what it meant was they built a, an altar, built a huge fire, threw the animal on whole, and burned everything. Okay? The whole offering, the whole animal was completely consumed by fire. So first of all, it means that it was an offering with no personal benefit. Okay? Noah's worship, and, and again, this is for us. Okay, what's worship? Well, for Noah, it was given with no personal benefit. Now, there were other kinds of offerings or gifts where they got to eat a portion of it, but this was not that kind of worship. It was worship that gave nothing to Noah. It was completely for God. All right, how much of our worship is that way? How much of our worship is solely for God's benefit? Or do we leave church going, well, the music was good this morning, but I just didn't really just didn't do something for me. Right? Summer was okay, but until I fell asleep after three minutes, and it just didn't do something for me. Right? How much of our worship is about what I feel or experience out of it versus a pure gift of God that is lifted up for Him alone? See, Noah's gift was lifted up for God alone with no personal benefit to himself. Secondly, it was Noah's worship was a response to God's protection and salvation. Okay, Noah comes out of the boat, and he is fully aware that he has just been brought through the destruction of the world, that he has been saved and his family and the creatures with him have been saved, and he expresses and acknowledges God's protection and salvation. Okay, he is offering this to say, God, you saved me. I am here because you saved me. Uh, it was to acknowledge God's remembering, right? that God did not abandon him, that God remembered and took action to save him. 
Uh, thirdly, it was an offering of thanksgiving. Uh, Noah was, through this act, expressing thankfulness and gratefulness to God. Okay, I have life. I'm standing on dry land, and you know the world's not, for the first time in 365 days, not moving beneath me. He was thankful for that. You know, I don't, I'm not seasick anymore. Hopefully he didn't get seasick. He's thankful. He's got a lot to be thankful for. Deliverance, God's grace, God's protection and provision, God's meeting and walking with him. Um, fourthly, <coughs> it was a sacrifice. Okay, get the picture here. Okay, uh, Noah's getting out the boat, and there are only certain limited animals that were considered clean or appropriate for sacrifice. Now, the interesting thing is, we don't exactly know what these are, but if we follow later uh, Old Testament Levitical laws and assume they were similar, all the uh, animals that were appropriate were sacrificed were also the ones that people would most likely eat. Okay, and there's there's they're coming out two by two, you know, and the clean ones. Okay, there's seven by seven. There's a few more, but he's offering up his own herd, basically. Okay. Well, there goes one less goat, one less sheep, one less cow, one less chicken. Okay, there goes my farm. Right? It cost him something. Okay, it cost him something to offer up these gifts. It was indeed a sacrifice. He was giving up something. Okay, and it cost him personally. He didn't want to buy it, but it cost him. Uh, fifthly, uh, it's a picture of wholehearted devotion. The picture of burning a whole offering was symbolic of the worshiper giving him whole, his whole self. Okay, this is not half-hearted. This is not well. You know, I got to do this kind of worship thing, make God feel good, so I can go on my merry way. No, this was a picture of a guy who walked with God, who had been fully and completely obedient to God, and was fully devoting his life to God. Finally, it was a mark of true righteousness. Um, we talked last week that righteousness meant that Noah had a walk of obedient faith in God. True righteousness is marked in obedience and faith. But true righteousness is also seen by a person who is a true worshiper of God. Okay, Noah worshipped God, and that was his righteousness. Okay? Uh, if people claim to be righteous uh, but do not worship God, uh, you question their righteousness. Okay, it's not true righteousness. Uh, what does this mean for us? Uh, you know, worship ought to be a priority in our life. Okay, God, uh, if He is to be truly the first thing on our list, means that everything we do should be done in worship to Him. Now, what does it mean for us to to offer sacrifices to God as worship? Uh, we don't live in a day anymore where we go out and kill. We can kill things to eat them, but we don't kill things to burn them on a fire up to God. Okay? okay, we don't meet on Sundays and after church go out in the front, you know, and get a cow and burn it. Um, interesting as that would be, uh, we don't do that anymore, right? So, what does it mean for us to offer up sacrifices to God? Uh, let me give you real briefly uh, what the New Testament says about offering sacrifices to God and how we can do that in a New Testament context. First of all, <coughs> it means giving our praise to God. Okay, praise is to be a sacrifice of worship. First Peter 2, 5 and 9 says this, You yourselves 
are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Because we're gathered today here as a as the building blocks of a spiritual temple. You to you are to be a holy priesthood. What do priests do? Well, priests offer sacrifices. Noah was exercising a priestly role here. Uh, and we are a holy priesthood to do what? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Can we gather on Sunday mornings throughout the week as we worship God? We are to be exercising the role of a priesthood who are offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Well, what are those? Well, he says in verse 9, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, so part of praise is simply proclaiming the marvelous excellencies of God. Okay, when you acknowledge and declare all that God is and does, that is worship. Okay, you don't, have to, you don't have to get all worked up about it. You don't have to foam with the mouth. I mean, if you do, it's good. But you don't, have to, you don't even have to feel anything. Okay, uh, now it should come from your heart, but coming from your heart doesn't always mean it's emotional. Okay, especially some of us like me that are emotionally jilted anyway. You know, there's limits to how far we can go with that. But it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith that from our heart we genuinely proclaim, God, this is who you are. You are excellent, marvelous, and wonderful. Okay, sometimes music and poetry is very helpful with that. The Psalms and great hymns are great at helping us express and put into words the marvelous excellencies of God. That's worship. That is a sacrifice of praise. Uh, something else we can do, we can love each other. Okay, Ephesians 5.2 says this, and this is quite interesting in light of, of Genesis 9. <coughs> Paul says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And we'll see in a minute. Noah's gift was a fragrant offering. Okay? It says, Walk in love as Christ's gift was, loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Uh, worship is loving each other. Okay, When we engage each other in relationship and fellowship and communion, we pray for, support, and love each other, when we give and care for each other, in the name of Jesus, it's a sacrifice of worship. And sometimes loving like that is a sacrifice. Uh, thirdly, it means giving your life to God in complete surrender. Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, so we are to offer our life up to God on the altar as a living sacrifice. And he goes on to say, and this is holy and acceptable to God, and it is your spiritual worship. Okay, a life dedicated to God, serving Him, yielded to Him, bowed before Him, where we say, God, my life is yours, to do with as you please, that is worship. And I would say, praising God with all your heart on Sunday morning from a heart that is not yielded and offered up, from a life that is not fully surrendered to God, is not worship. Okay? We cannot give with our mouth what we have not given God from our heart. Right? So if we want to truly worship God, we have to stand honestly before God and say, God, my life is yours. I have no claim on it. You can do with my life as you please. I yield it fully to you and surrender and sacrifice. 
That's worship. Finally, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 says this, Through Him, that is through Jesus, let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge His name. So that's expressing His glory and His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Okay, praising God, offering of sacrifice is doing good and giving. Okay, so when we give our offerings on Sunday morning, uh, that's a sacrifice of worship. It's praising God if we do it from the right heart. If we see a brother in need and we help them out, whether it's financially or through our time or through encouraging words, that's a sacrifice of worship and praise. Okay, there's probably a lot more in the New Testament. Those are just a few examples. Uh, the bottom line is this. You could summarize it this way. Every single thing we do from morning to night has the potential to be a gift to God of worship and praise. I would challenge you to do this. I'd like you to think of three, four things that you do every single day. Uh, breathing not being one of them. <laughs> okay. Maybe eating, maybe... Well, not sleeping either. <laughs> Although sleeping would be worship. It's resting in God. But things that you do, okay, your job, activities, events... Uh, Commit to make start by making those three things, those four things, worship to God. God, when I drive my car to the office, I'm going to make it worship to you. Okay, it'll change the way you drive. Okay, and it'll take you a lot longer to get to work. Right? Oh, it will me. Maybe not you. It will me. Okay, make those things worship, and then expand that. Okay, expand it. Okay, until every activity. Imagine how it'd be. If everything you did from morning to night was consciously, deliberately, an act of praise and worship to God. Okay, that would be a life of worship. Okay, let me conclude with this last thing. Do we have influence with God? I want you to notice something in this last verse, last two verses of chapter 8, that are incredible. Okay, incredible truths. It says in verse 21 that the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. Okay, it was to God a soothing aroma. Okay, Noah responds to God's saving act through worship. But I want you to notice that God responds to Noah's worship, Okay, his righteous worship. And first thing we notice is that it has an effect on God. It is a soothing aroma. That doesn't mean that God is down there sniffing up the smoke of this burning flesh and raw. Okay, that's, I've smelt that. It's not a pleasant smell. And if God likes that, well, I don't know. Okay, it's not physical. Okay, God is, doesn't need to smell things burning, and he gets like some kind of kick out of that. Okay, it's spiritual and symbolic, and it's represent, representative of Noah's heart. Okay, the the act of Noah's heart was a soothing aroma to God. Okay, and it's pictured in these terms. What's a soothing aroma to you? And I love walking, when I was a kid, walking into the house. And, uh, of course, in, in the States, the windows and doors are all shut up because it's freezing cold outside. And you walk in the door, and you can smell baking chocolate chip oatmeal cookies. Oh, man. Now, that's a soothing aroma, right? What's a soothing aroma to you? Another one for me is uh, the smell on a cold, snowy, wintry day. It's snowing outside, and you're inside. And there's this scent of a, of a fire burning. 
okay? And there's that pine, there's that smoke in the air of the pine scent. I love that smell. And it just brings back very soothing memories for me, right? But what soothes you? You know, now you can buy these little nifty little oily things and oily burny things and cook oil in your room. You can get any kind of smell you want, right? And we do that because there is something soothing about that, right? Something you breathe that in and you go, ah, it's relaxing, it's calming, right? Well, it's interesting that Noah's sacrifice has a soothing effect on God. What does that mean? Well, it means that his sacrifice, although Noah did not intend it this way, but Noah's sacrifice is propitiating. I go, oh, great. That helps. Okay, what that means is that I can say big words. <laughs> and I had to get a dictionary to look up what it means. Okay, and it means this. It means it stops somebody's anger. Okay, it soothed God's wrath. Okay, God had just poured out incredible wrath on the world. A, a wrath and anger that God has a just right to, by the way. And he will carry out again. But the sacrifice is propitiating. It soothes and calms God's anger. Okay? Now, this is not manipulating God. This is not conning God. Uh, but notice the effect that it has on God. It soothes him. And God ponders in his heart and he says to his heart, I'm not going to do this again. Okay? I am from now on, I'm going to deal with mankind with mercy because I have been moved and stirred by the worship of, of one person. Can you have influence with God? You can. And the amazing thing with Noah, you know, we have, we have a lot to curse Adam for, but in many ways in this recreation story, Noah is a new Adam, the second Adam. And unlike Adam who brought the curse, Noah through one act of worship from a genuine heart, from a guy who walked with God, brought God's mercy to the world till it ends. That's pretty good influence. Okay, that's not bad, right? How did he do that? Well, it was the influence of true worship. Okay, it's, and, and it did not manipulate, it did not con the heart of God. Okay, in, in, in the false religions of, of, of Bible times, they would try to offer uh, gifts to con the gods. Okay, but this isn't that. This is true worship. This is a, a gift offered out of pure motives to simply honor and give praise and worship and thanks to God. That's all. But that kind of a gift has influence with God and it stirs his heart. And we've got to understand that for us, worship is not just an empty exercise that we go through. Sometimes we get a buzz out and sometimes we don't. What we've got to understand is that true worship from a true heart stirs and has an effect on the heart of God. It is to him a soothing aroma. It, it, in a sense, you can use the word that it ministers to him. Now, he doesn't need it. God, God did not create us because he needs our worship. Uh, this doesn't mean that God's not sovereign. And some people have a problem with this because they see the sovereignty of God and they see that God somehow has to, that his sovereignty somehow means he has to act independently of the influence and activities of men. But that's not true. <clears throat> God, saw, God, in His sovereignty, has decided to enter into relationships with human beings where He allows us to have influence upon Him. 
we are in the kind of relationship with Him where our actions and effects and our worship and our heart does something in Him. Just as we long for His coming to us and ministering to us to stir something in us. It's a relationship. And a relationship is something where we share hearts and feelings. We have influence with each other. And the incredible thing as we see in this passage, Noah has, unwittingly, and Noah doesn't even know it, God is in the hidden chambers of his, of his heart reflecting on these things. Noah's oblivious to it. He's just, you know, worshiping. Man, God's awesome. I'm loving this. And I'm on solid ground. And life is good. He has no idea what he is stirring in the heart of God. And not only stirring for himself, but stirring for us thousands of years later until the end of the earth. Okay, that was the effect of his worship on God. And note what it says. You don't believe me. You're saying, oh, that's not possible. Notice what it says. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though, get this, even though, and, and literally in the Hebrew it says, because the human race is screwed up from beginning to end. Okay? Because of the wickedness from their youth. Okay, God says, basically, and, and, and the Hebrew really says this, it says that because of Noah's sacrifice, God changes his heart towards people. Okay. That's what it says. Uh, we have that effect in our worship. Okay. Uh, it's not something we do in ourselves. It is a response to God's saving work in us. It is God stirring in us and through the work of his Spirit, equipping and enabling us to even do this. But God calls us into that kind of relationship with himself where we, as we gather together with one voice, worship God, it rises up to him as a sweet aroma that stirs his heart. Uh, this also means, lastly, that uh, not only do we have influence and worship with God, but it really illustrates and shows why sacrifices have effect with God. Okay? There is something in the heart of true worship when it's offered and sacrificed that stirs and moves God and changes his heart towards man. In this case, it means a certain kind of general grace, general mercy towards all humanity and animals. It doesn't mean that through Noah's sacrifice, all human beings are saved. They just live longer and without getting wiped out by a flood. Okay? There's mercy. Uh, it brings us to the picture of Jesus' sacrifice. Here's the thing. If Noah, a human being could have this kind of influence and effect with God, and his offering could so stir God that God would choose to pour out mercy on all mankind. Okay, how much greater impact and influence could the sacrifice of the Son of God have? Uh, the perfect Jesus, perfect God-man, who out of absolute love for the Father and for humankind, and absolute obedience to his Father, an absolute devotion and worship to, to bring glory to the Father. What effect would that have on the heart of God when that kind of a sacrifice was willingly laid on the altar and Jesus gave up his own life for us? Well, the effect was that it greatly stirred the heart of God. Praise God. And God chose not only to look with limited mercy on humanity, but to unleash 
the unbounded measure of his grace toward us because of what Jesus did. There are other legal things uh, that Jesus' death did, but one thing it did, it was an offering, a soothing aroma to God that pleased the heart of the Father and changed his heart towards you and I, that he, for those who walk in faith, would no longer be under his wrath at all, but would be uh, in a relationship with him as sons and daughters, as children. Praise God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.